Morning, everybody. Yeah, my name's Josh, as uh, Rich has just mentioned. Um, I'm always uh, surprised and honoured, actually, to be able to, to speak to you. And I was, I was saying this to Esther yesterday, and she, she sort of, Esther's my wife, by the way, she, um, she said, I'm, I'm always surprised as well, to be honest. Um, but she said, when I listen to you, it's a little bit like uh, watching a dog try and walk on its hind legs. So I was like, interesting. She said, yeah. Does it, so it doesn't matter if it does it well, you're just surprised that it does it at all. But uh, It's always uh, nice to be encouraged by your wife. Uh, but yeah, we're going to be continuing um, looking through the book of Exodus today. And I'm going to be carrying on where Andrea les- left off last week. So the book of Exodus is kind of split into two halves. Uh, the first half, um, the... Israelites um, uh, brought out of Egypt, released from slavery, and they go on this journey through the desert. And then the second half of the book um, is sort of uh, God teaching the Israelites the law and how he wants them to live. And we're today sort of at the the middle point, the end of that journey, the climax of this journey that they've gone on through the desert. And uh, you might you might know that the Israelites took about 40 years to actually get to the promised land, but so far they've done about two months of traveling. They've gone from Egypt down to Mount Sinai. And uh, I had a quick look on Google Maps um, yesterday, and that journey should probably take about four days, but I guess the roads back then weren't probably quite as good as they are today. And, uh, and I think they did have quite a bit to carry, so you'd uh, forgive them for, for how long it took them. Um, but I guess the, 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 the Israelites didn't realize uh, or uh, started to think that the, the journey wasn't going how they thought it was. They might have thought that it was going to go quicker. I don't know if you've ever been on a journey um, that you go on, you planned it, and it just doesn't go to plan, doesn't go how you expected it to. Uh, and it go, you either go a completely different way or it just takes longer than you thought. Uh, and a few years ago, I went on a journey up to Fort William, uh, which is in the Highlands of Scotland, uh, with work. I decided I'll go on the train, thought I don't have to drive, get some work done, maybe have a little nap on the way. Um, and uh, the journey was going fine. I even got upgraded to first class, which meant you just get a tea towel on the back of your chair. But um, <laughs> the journey was going fine. I had to change, I think, in Glasgow. When I got to Glasgow, uh, I went to go on to my next train. Uh, and it had been cancelled. There had been a, a rock fall on the line and um, the train had been cancelled. Long story short, I was hanging around the uh, train station for, I don't know, probably about four hours with them saying there might be a train, there might not, uh, we might put some coaches on, we might not. And then they said, there's nothing, you're going to have to make your own way home or just wait till tomorrow when the train comes on. And then these two American girls came up to me and said, are you trying to get to Fort William? So I'm already really annoyed. The journey's taken about four hours longer than it should have done, and I'm not where I wanted to be. So I said, yeah. And she, they said, well, we're trying to see if we can get a group of people together and we'll share a taxi, because we're trying to get there as well. So there was me, two American girls, and a Dutch girl in a taxi uh, <laughs> heading to Fort William. So the first thing I did was text Esther and say, I'm getting in a taxi with two American girls and a Dutch girl. Uh, And I'm already annoyed, I'm already frustrated, and now I've got two American girls just talking constantly. Um, And then I've got this Dutch girl sat next to me, I'm in the back, she's falling to sleep with a coffee that just keeps pouring over me. 
I'm like, this is, this is not the journey that I expected. And to make things, to just to top it all off, as soon as we arrived into Fort William, this Dutch girl had got a seatbelt. It came over the top of her, and she unfastened the seatbelt, just as I was unfastening mine, but she let go of it, and it, it, the metal bit <laughs> smacked me right in the eye. So that journey didn't go how, how I wanted it to, and the next day, the meeting that I went to, the guy I was meant to be meeting didn't turn up, so it's pointless. Um, <laughs> But I get the sense, and I started moaning, and I get the sense when I read this passage uh, that the journey wasn't quite going how the Israelites thought it was going to. Well, let's, um, let's jump into it. So it's Exodus 17. Now, the passage we're going to look at today is quite long, so we're looking at uh, Exodus 17 and 18. So what I'm going to do, we'll read through it, I'll pull out a few bits, and then I'm going to focus in on uh, some aspects of it. So Exodus 17, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb, uh, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this and in sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, the Lord is the Lord among us or not? And I don't know about you but I get a sense of deja vu when I read this passage. So it seems that uh, God provides the Israelites with what they need and then they moan and then God provides the Israelites with what they need and then they moan and it just seems to be this cycle uh, but one thing that stood out to me was they don't take the moaning to God they moan to Moses um, and I think you know when sometimes we can we can learn from that that you know if we want to moan, let's moan to God. Let's not moan amongst ourselves and start gossiping. Let's take our, our problems to God. So let's carry on uh, in verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites. Uh, as Moses had ordered. And Mo Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Moses' hands grew tired. They took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. 
because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the uh, Amalekites from generation to generation. One thing that jumped out at me when reading this is that Joshua didn't defeat the Amalekites on his own, and neither did Moses. They both had a job to do. And when Moses was struggling, people got around him and helped him. And they couldn't do it without God. Uh, And I think we need to remember that as a church as well. We can't do anything without God. And we've all got our own jobs to do. And sometimes we might need help and we might need supporting uh, to, to actually get those jobs done. So we're going to jump into Exodus 16 now. I'm not going to read it all, um, but please do go, go away and, and, and read it in your own time. But the first bit in, uh, in Exodus 18 is about Jethro, uh, which is Moses' um, father-in-law. Now, Jethro isn't an, uh, an Israelite. He, he worships different gods. He doesn't worship the God of the Bible. Um, and in this first bit, Jethro goes out and meets Moses, and Moses tells Jethro uh, what uh, God has done for the Israelites so far on the journey. So let's jump into it at uh, uh, verse 11. It says, Now I know that this is Jethro talking. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all of the gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Je- uh, Jethro, Moses' father in law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat the meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. And then it goes on uh, and it talks about how um, Moses, um, how he's sort of leading the people and he's, he's doing uh, everything on his, on his own. And then uh, in, we, let's jump to 17 where Moses' father-in-law actually gives him some advice. He says... Moses' father replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way Uh, they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. And Moses takes that advice on and he implements it. And then it finishes by saying, then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. I love that last bit in there, and sometimes I don't know if you've got a father-in-law that you just want to send on his way. Um, But the passage does show the importance of surrounding ourselves with people who are 
happy to tell us that actually we might not be doing things the right way and surrounding ourselves with wise people who are willing to listen to, who can give us advice and realising that we can't do everything ourselves, we need to share the load sometimes. Now, I remember when um, I was younger, um, I did the Gold Duke of Edinburgh. If you don't know what the uh, Duke of Edinburgh award scheme is, it's basically an award scheme for young people to help them develop uh, different skill sets. And the Gold DV is like the, the last level of it, if you like. And it sort of all comes together in the culmination of all various things, but you end up doing an expedition. Uh, so we went on this three-day expedition in the North Yorkshire Moors. There was about uh, eight of us, uh, and we'd planned it in the summer. Um, the problem was that uh, this summer was the summer of unprecedented floods, which was great. So we, we'd set off, we'd camped a little bit like last night, I think, for the 1830s. <laughs> We'd, uh, we'd set off, we'd done the first day, we'd camped over um, and we'd woke up and there was a river basically running down the side of the tent. That river wasn't there the night before. Um, the tent was wet, everything we were wearing was wet. It was just, everyone was miserable, everyone was depressed. The only highlight for me is that my younger brother was also on this expedition with us and he seemed to be in a worse mood than I was. So that kind of put a little bit of a, of a cherry on it. And, I just tried to make it a little bit harder for my brother by winding him up a little bit more. Um, and that day I was actually map reading, it was my turn to map read, so we set off from the campsite and the route was straight up a hill, straight up a river. It used to be a path, but overnight it turned into a river. So I took us up this path that we were supposed to go on and my brother just started moaning and just like whinging, why are you taking us up a river, I'm drenched, just, you know, you know, little brothers just moan, don't they? So I'm like, this is where we're going, this is the way we've got to go. So we got to the top of the, the hill, uh, and he completely lost it, which I, I think it was probably because I was laughing at him, uh, but he completely lost it, and he decided that he knew a better route. So he went off in, in a different direction, saying this is the best way to go. We all just stood and watched him, and literally, within 30 seconds, it was like a full Vicar of Dibley moment. He just disappeared into like a six-foot hole full of water. <laughs> Um, it, it was one of the best things I've ever seen, I think. Um, but sometimes I think we think we know best. Sometimes we don't listen uh, to what the map reader is saying and we want to start moaning. Uh, but there's a reason my brother should have listened to my map reading skills because they're pretty good. Um, and, and, if, if he, uh, and if he had, he wouldn't have drowned in a puddle on the top of the Yorkshire Moors. Um, and I think there was a reason that God took the Israelites on a journey through the desert. God didn't just take the Israelites straight from Egypt directly into the promised land. I think there's like a straight path. Uh, there's actually like a highway that they could have taken right to the promised land. But they would have uh, encountered the Philistines and immediately faced war. But they weren't ready for war. They were weak in faith and they were weak uh, in general. They needed to be transformed. They, they, they came out of Egypt as slaves and they needed to learn to live uh, as men of faith. And I think we do too. We need to be transformed. And it's the wilderness experience uh, for them that became the school of discipleship. 
But for us, we're in the school of discipleship too. The experience of life is our journey. The ups and the downs, the struggles, the troubles, the challenges. I think when we become Christians, we come out of the world and we bring a lot of the world with us. And just as God went on a journey with the Israelites and transformed them from slaves to people who followed and trusted him, God doesn't want to leave us in the condition he found us in either. He, he wants to transform us and, and work with us and, and that work's done inside. And God uses our journey through the desert to help transform us, to help prepare us. And the desert in, in your life, the deserts in your life, they're, they're not to punish you, but if you put your trust in God, God will use them to transform you and help prepare you for your final destination. And you often hear Christians talking about sin, and you might be mistaken for thinking that sin is uh, just not sticking to a set of rules that, that God's put in place and he tells us to keep. But sin is really rooted in thinking that God doesn't have what's best in mind for us. And sometimes we can go from problem to problem to problem because we want to do things our way. We think that God is taking us on a journey that would be much quicker if we went our own way. Uh, but it's, it's not like we're deliberately trying to go against God. We're not trying to make things harder for ourselves. All we're doing is chasing happiness. But we're refusing to listen to God about how the best way to get that is. And I don't think Adam and Eve were sat around thinking, hey, Eve, I've got an idea, let's ruin humanity. I think what they were trying to do is find happiness, but they thought they knew the best way to get that. They didn't think that God uh, knew the best way to do that. And just like my brother thought, he knew a quicker way and a better route on our expedition, rather than realizing that he needed to follow the, the map reader. And I think what God wants to teach us when we're in the desert is that we've got to trust him. We've got to hand it over to him. He doesn't direct you down wrong paths. We're just impatient. God knows what he's doing. He's got the plan. He's reading the map and he knows which path uh, to take for our good. And the Bible says, and we, uh, and we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. He's working things out for our good, if you'll just be patient. And deserts are dry, desolate, empty places. There's no water, no life. And I think sometimes our lives can feel like that. And sometimes we try and find our, our, our own water. We try and find our own source of life. I went through a period like that myself, um, where I thought, Going out and getting drunk and make me feel alive. I thought certain relationships would make me feel alive. I thought a job might make me feel alive. But they didn't because there's only one person who can make you feel alive and give you life abundantly, and that's God. And I know sometimes you might find yourself um, in a desert, you're dry and empty, and it's not your fault. It's because someone did something to you. And, you're like, God, why have, you, why have you brought me to this place? Uh, but David in the Bible, he was like that. He, he was in a desert when uh, he'd been told that he was going to be king, but now he's running from the king. Uh, and he's like, God, why am I running from Saul? You said I was going to be king. 
But how many of us find ourselves in that position where we're like, God, why are you letting this happen to me? You didn't ask to be abused. You might have grown up in a broken family and some of us might not have known our parents. You, don't, you didn't ask for that. But instead of asking why, ask what. what. What can I get from this situation? Sometimes I find myself when I'm going through tough times, asking God to make the situation just go away. But what I should be asking for is for God to make a way. I heard a saying that said, um, God may not get you out, but he'll get you through. Basically, he won't just pluck you out of a bad situation, but he will guide you through it if you'll just let him. And if we look back at this passage, I think there's something quite interesting. Moses' staff is mentioned quite a few times, and, it actually, and it's actually mentioned quite a few times through the book of Exodus, and it tends to be used a lot in relation to judgment. So the start of this passage is about the Israelites moaning about God, and Moses says, why do you put the Lord to the test? Why do you, why do you judge him? So it's like being in a, in a courtroom, and it's the case of the people versus God. In verse 5, you get the representatives of the people on one side. And in verse 6, God said, I will stand before you by the rock of horror. As you, uh, so you've got God on the other side. And in the middle is Moses with his staff. And we're reminded in verse 5 that this staff that brought judgment on Egypt, so Moses is like the judge in the courtroom and we know that God is innocent and the people are in the wrong all God has done is try to help the people but they moan and they put him on trial and the hammer is about to fall uh, the judgment is about to be to be cast and it doesn't go the way you'd think it would God tells Moses strike the rock the rock where God is standing it's quite a dramatic uh, and surprising moment actually. Moses brings down the staff of judgment on God. Uh, God takes the judgment that his people deserve and as a result blessings flow to the people uh, and the, the, the um, water quenches the thirst. And it sounds quite familiar doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians 10 4 Paul says this, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. And it's a direct link to show us that what happened here directly points us to the cross. At the cross, there was another courtroom. This time, the case was humanity versus God. On one side was guilty humanity who actually deserved to be blamed. And on the other side was the sinless Son of God. And God the Father said, strike the rock, and the rod of judgment fell on Jesus. And as a result, humanity got blessings of water. In John 7, 38 to 39, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within. But this is not actually water like, um, like it was for the Israelites. It's just, it was symbolic. By this, Jesus meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. 
And then we see the staff used again in the battle against the Amalekites. As long as Moses held, held his hands, the Israelites were winning. This is the staff that struck Egypt in judgment. This is the staff that struck God in verse 6 as a sign that God himself would take the judgment for the people. And now this staff of judgment symbolically uh, direct, is directed against the Amalekites. As long as God's judgment is symbolically directed against the Amalekites, the battle goes well. And Moses' hands steadily hold a lofty staff. Joshua overcame the Amalekite army. It's another story of judgment. And there's so much more I'd love to talk about around that battle, but it, it really would be a, another, another sermon. Um, but I just wanted to focus in on the end of the story around the battle. Um, with victory secured, Moses builds an altar. He calls the altar, the Lord is my banner. And when I was young, I was in the air cadets and I had the privilege to parade the Burma Star banner. Um, and I won't go into it, but the, uh, the Battle of Burma was a conflict, part of the World War II conflict. Um, and just holding that banner just reminded me and made me think of all those people that fought under that banner uh, and that gave their lives. And the purpose of a banner is a military one. It's a, it's a rallying point, the sign for an army to stand firm. Uh, but the banner here isn't held by Joshua on the battlefield, but by Moses on the hill. And the banner is God himself. It's another direct picture of the cross. God once again was stood on a hill uh, in Jesus on the cross. God in Christ is our rally point, our standard, our sign of victory. And God is our banner. How much more should, we be should that inspire us when we recognize that he is our banner over us? And his banner over us is love. It's God's part to watch over, to bless. God's hand on our lives is what we need. It's that relationship of faith that strengthens us and helps us to understand how to walk this life, how to journey. We need to understand it. God is transforming us. And part of that transforming is to understand that we've got to have God involved in all things that we're doing. We need his blessing, we need his hand, and we need to have God as our banner. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then uh, I think the worship team are going to come and lead us, and then we'll take communion. So, yeah, Lord, I just thank you for, for what you've done, Lord. Thank you that, um, that you took that judgment for us, Lord. Thank you that when, when that hammer of judgment fell, Lord, you poured blessings out to us, Lord. And we can, we can receive that today, and I thank you for that, and we can receive it freely. Lord, just help us to keep our eyes focused on you, Lord. Help us to keep you as our rally point, Lord. Help us to keep you as our banner. And help us to just draw closer to you, Lord. I ask all this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.